Hello, you curious souls. Thanks for returning for the second part of How Marriage and Family Therapists Are Made. This podcast is called Through the Eyes of a Therapist. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. Thanks for joining me in exploring all the mental health careers that exist. In the last episode, we talked to Luis and Mishka, and they are preliminarily licensed. So it's kind of like the driver's permit of the counseling world. So they're associate marriage and family therapists. On today's episode, I talked to two seasoned clinicians, and they're both fully licensed marriage and family therapists who are in private practice. I talked to Maritza Placencia, licensed marriage and family therapist, and Zilat Lopez, licensed marriage and family therapist, licensed professional clinical counselor. If you have not yet heard the first part of how marriage and family therapists are made, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode because these two episodes go hand in hand. And of course, you can always find both episodes at www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Before we start, I just want to take a quick second to remind you that you can pledge as little as $1 a month to the podcast. If you're interested in doing so, please visit patreon.podbean.com slash therapist eyes. So first of all, I want to thank my guests, Maritza and Z. They are licensed marriage and family therapists. I believe both of you are from California, right? Correct. Yes. And I believe Z just got her dual license. So now you're a licensed professional clinical counselor as well as an MFT. Correct. Um, so that's pretty cool. Congratulations. That's a lot of work. Um, yeah, yeah. If you've been following the series of episodes that I've been creating lately, they are about becoming a therapist. So if you want to become a therapist, this particular episode is how to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. And then maybe Z can add a little more about how to add your clinical license on top of that. This is basically for people who are either toying with the idea of becoming a therapist. Maybe they're in college and they're an undergrad and they're psych majors or something and they're like hmm I kind of want to be a therapist or it could be that somebody's in a career change well uh I guess we'll just start so my name is Zilat Lopez and I'm extremely excited to be on this just because I remember when I was a student and the journey that led me to it uh currently I am licensed in the state of California as a licensed marriage and family therapist as well as a licensed professional clinical counselor at as of this month. So I am duly licensed. And I think one of the most interesting parts of my journey was at one po- or at one point being licensed and an intern at the same time. So I did become licensed as a licensed marriage and family therapist last year. And the first time I took my LPCC exam, I didn't pass. And I also didn't pass my first exam with the MFT. So it was really about playing with patience and time. Currently, uh, I do have a private practice, and I've been building that just very rapidly. And I think what's helped me really grow that extremely well is starting my business plan a year even before I got licensed. Immediately, I went with a therapist to have my mental health on point and on game and with a business coach. So that leads me to where I'm at right now with a thriving practice free of insurance panels and cash only. Perfect. That sounds awesome. Man, when I get to that point in my career, I will call you (laughs) and I will ask you all the questions. 
So my name is Maritza Plasencia, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, as you already said. Um, I got licensed back in 2016. Um, was it 2016? No, 2015, sorry. It's been a blur. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> and I have private practice, a uh, private practice where I, um, my focus is working with adults, uh, in, on individual and a couple spaces. And I mainly work with adults dealing with relationship issues that are being caused because of trauma. And I decided that I wanted to go into private practice because I saw that agency work for me personally, um, was very limiting in the ideas that I had to bring to the table and how I wanted to help the community. So I, at the end of the day, I had all these ideas of how to come out to the community and, you know, bring more to the table. But I was so burnt out at the end of the day from all of the work that, you know, was involved in working at an agency. So I decided that I couldn't allow that to stop me from um, really being who I wanted to be as a professional and uh, the reason why I ended up, you know, getting into this field. So I, you know, through, through all the struggle of um, getting to an uncomfortable place, um, I went kicking and screaming into private practice. And here I am now just really happy to be in private practice. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. And just, you know, like uh, see a lot, I'm just very lucky to also be um, not on insurance panels, and I'm currently for the first time not taking current, not taking any clients because I'm so full. So I'm looking into now my plan of expanding my business into a group practice. Yes! Yay! <laughs> Why did you want to become a therapist in to begin with? So I personally. In college, I struggled a lot um, being first generation to go to college, not really having anybody um, to guide me through. It was so stressful. And I think that kind of got to me. And I went and I I was lucky enough to have a mentor um, my first year of college because through a program that I was assigned to in my school um, that was meant for minorities, for first-generation minorities to go to college. And I went to my mentor who happened to be um, a graduate student pursuing their um, their degree to become a marriage, and, a marriage and family therapist. And my mentor actually... Um, sent me to the counseling center and that was my first experience with therapy i mm. then you know re realized that i was dealing with ptsd at the time and that kind of just informed every step i took um from that point on and it just led me to wanting to pursue um you know the the, the path of becoming you know somebody that would be equipped to help people dealing with PTSD, dealing with um, the effects of trauma. And I just, you know, over the years have evolved into, into this person that's a little more focused, so more focused in working with adults, because I feel that working with the adults that are either parenting or around the children that are our future generations is a way of me reaching the children as well. 
So I mm. decided that that was going to be my specialty was working with adults. And that's my personal story is that I dealt with my own PTSD early on in college. You had your own experiences with mental health and, and mental illness. And then yes. finding um, somebody, I guess a therapist, it sounds like that was maybe a good experience and maybe that's how it influenced you to become a therapist. So that that initial experience, I would say it was the necessary experience for me to to go down that path. I don't I wouldn't looking back and looking at the experiences I've had since in my own personal counseling. I wouldn't say it was the best one. I, I don't think that that particular therapist was necessarily a good fit for me. And I think that it's still I can still give it a positive spin because it made me realize why I needed to go into this field because I couldn't relate to her. She was not Latina and I really didn't see myself in her. Mm. And so that was one of the reasons why I that or one of the factors that influenced my decision um, that I wanted to find others that I could relate to. And it was really difficult for me to find others that I could relate to um, over the years. And it's not until now that I myself am a licensed therapist that I've been, you know, pursuing that now. You know, I haven't really been that lucky. I, I still think that we have so much, you know, so much um, need for Latina Latina therapists or, or, you know, Latinx, you know, just even men, um, because I haven't really been that lucky. And so I that's one of the reasons why I even, you know, signed up to when I saw the opportunity to to come on and talk to you today, I decided like that's going to be one of my messages because it has been challenging for me even now to mm -hmm. find my own Latina therapist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a really important part of this work, you know, that I wasn't really aware of up until maybe a year and a half ago, which is really interesting. But let me just explain why. So in El Paso, Texas, we're on the border of Mexico and Texas. Um, there's about 850,000 people in our city. And we're in a metropolitan area where we serve also a lot of people who come from Juarez, Mexico. And we're, we're kind of in this, somebody described it as like an oasis. Everywhere you turn, there's brown people, right? And so it's really interesting because um, once I started to seek my own therapy, and even in certain agencies, most of the nonprofit agencies in El Paso, um, mental health ones are run by people who are Anglo or white. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Out of a city with like full of like Mexican-American, Chicano people, you know, I wasn't really aware of the issue. Um, and then once I started to to interview other people for the podcast and talk to them, um, I realized that this is a huge issue. And it's kind of funny because I wasn't really forced to look at it up until it like kind of hit me in the face, like at my own workplace, in my own therapy, just things like that. So I think it's so important. And what about yeah. you, Z? Why did you want to become a therapist? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. And I can relate to both of you ladies so much. Um, side note that I actually was a recipient of the stipend for the state of California. So I also had to work in a underrepresented and underprivileged area for two years. And uh, I did. I worked at that for county. And every single day, I thank God for that experience because it grew me not only as a clinician, but it's truly put me in alignment with the work as a Latina Spanish speaking therapist. So in going into that journey, my my alignment and my purpose definitely speaks to me volumes. So I'll start with this. I was my mother and father's first child. Um, I was my mother's second marriage as she widowed really young. And when my mom was pregnant with me, the doctor told her that I was going to have Down syndrome and that he highly recommended that she abort because as undocumented, non-English, you know, non-English speaking parents, how could they take care of a special needs child? Wow. And this was... Yes, this was devastating to my mother. My mother went home in tears, you know, talked to my dad about it. And both of them, after, you know, a couple of days of really just sitting on it, they decided to have me. And they said, you know, whatever it is that our higher power provides us with and blesses us with, that's what we'll get. That's it. And here I am today with no Down syndrome. So the funny thing is that I didn't hear this story about my birth or even my coming into this world until I was in grad school. And that was so powerful that I just cried. I just cried hearing my mom because it really reiterated that I was on my path. And this is what I mean by it. When I was 16, my mother, she always told me, Z, you know, college is great, but you should always have a plan B. And she was always kind of like, hey, what do you want to do with yourself? You're doing great in school. I was always a straight A student. And I was bored. I was bored of going to like ceramics or photography. So my mom said, what about beauty school? And I said, yeah, you know, that could be fun. I didn't think much of it at 16. I figured, you know, these are great things to have as a girl, a license. You could get free stuff and discounts. So I'm this little 16-year-old girl that's going to beauty school. And I didn't think much of it either when I got licensed. I got licensed late into my 17, almost 18. I was the uh, youngest licensed cosmetologist licensed in California for 2005. So I've been licensed now 13 years. And at first I thought this is a great way to pay for college. And now looking back, it's truly been a blessing. Um, I, I'm out of school 100% debt free. I got through graduate school, I got through undergrad, and I owe nothing. I have no student loans. And I'm part of the 2% of Latinas in the U.S. that are business owners that are debt-free. And the reason I pose this is because I completely 100% believe that it is a possibility for people. I come from two parents that come from this country undocumented. They came here with nothing. If my father came with 50 bucks and a toothbrush, he was lucky, right? So... I got out of high school. I'm licensed as a cosmetologist, and my parents say, go to school. So I go to school, and I start studying psychology, sociology, and it didn't really hit me yet. I was like, yeah, I like it. I guess it's something to do. So I keep going to school. What really hit me is me working in the shop. You know, I'm doing women's hair. I'm doing highlights. I'm doing haircuts, color, and I'm a barber, too. So I have so much men clientele. It's ridiculous. And if anybody's ever gotten their hair done, it's Chisme Central. It's like, girl, how's it going? What's going on today? You know, shampooing their hair. They're telling me about their babies, their kids, el esposo, like just everybody at home, you know, the suegra, like how, how the mother-in-law <laughs> is getting up in their business. Mm -hmm. And I'm just 
low key, I am an unpaid therapist. And it didn't hit me until one day where one of the most beautiful clients I've ever had, you know, she didn't, she didn't come back after years of me seeing her every week. I found out that she passed away. She had cancer. And that day I cried. I cried so deeply. And I realized that at the end of it, my true purpose is that I was a good listener. I was able to hold space for them and share intimately what was in their heart. And that's when I knew I had to go right back to graduate school and get a degree as a therapist. And when I tried to do that, it, it was as if the universe said, Z, let me know that you really want this. And this is what I mean. I was a straight A student. I graduated in undergrad with the highest honors. And I was denied from graduate school three times. I applied to schools where you would never imagine would deny my application. But they did. And I'm so glad they did now. After the third time, I went into a huge depression. I wouldn't eat. I didn't buy groceries for like a week. I didn't go to the pool. I didn't go to the park. I didn't leave my apartment for like a week. And I really just asked my higher power and I said, what, like, what is it? What do you have in store for me? And it took me some time to get out of that deep, dark hole. And after six months, I tried again, and I applied to Mount St. Mary's in downtown L.A. And if anybody knows, it's a all-girls school Catholic school. And I'm not Catholic myself. I believe in, you know, being more spiritual than religious. But it was the most amazing experience, and my spirit just knew that that was it for me. And they are the only program in the nation that teaches therapists from the jump, from the start of school, to provide mental health services in Spanish. So it's called the Enlaces program. So I trained from day one in Spanish on how to provide Spanish-speaking services to an underrepresented population. And the minute I jumped into this program, my life changed. I started beating depression. I started just being extremely productive. I started being in tune with myself. Until this day, I thank God every single day that I was denied from those other schools. I thank God every day that I started out as a hairdresser because I would have men that would come to me and say, hey girl, you know, I need this cut. I need to look fresh today. I'm going out on a date. And I'd be like, a date? Like, didn't you go out with your wife last week? And he goes, oh, you know, I got a little side salad here. And humorously, I would have a heart to heart with them about, is this a choice you want to make? Do you want to come to me two weeks later and tell me, you know, you're getting a divorce because you're being dishonest with your wife? And it's such a beautiful thing that men felt vulnerable and were able to go there with me. And these are all the signs and the hints I was getting from the universe that this was the real work for me. And even now, I enjoy, you know, glamming up brides and putting their brows on fleek as much as I enjoy it. I know that my deeper, true spiritual work is to hold space for somebody in that in, in that capacity. And this is why every day I wake up and I'm tired, but I feel fulfilled and in alignment with why I was born. I think that's an amazing story. You know, the people who are listening to this, um, the way I kind of get them to listen or my hook is, are you really good at listening to people? Or have people told you, hey, you're a really good listener or you're really good at giving advice or things like that, right? And we know that Therapy is much more than that. It takes a lot more skill and it's more nuanced. But hearing both of your stories, they have different, they have, they're different paths, right? But I feel like either one could speak to a different type of person. So maybe somebody who's going through their own mental illness as maybe a young adult, right? Thinking about what am I going to do with my life? Um, and then they have an experience in therapy and they realize, you know what, I'm really needed in this field. 
I'd say this. I'd say that it wasn't an easy journey at all. And, you know, there's definitely days like when I look in the office and I see my degree, you know, on the wall, that's a piece of paper. Like there's no way for me to put in all the effort, the crime, the blood, sweat and tears that went into getting where I am today. And I'll say this. When I was really young, when I was 17, my father asked me, like, sweetheart, listen, like the one of the most important decisions you will ever make is what you do on a daily with yourself and your purpose. If the world was perfect and you didn't need money, what would you do for a living? And if the answer isn't what you're trying to do right now, what you're trying to achieve, what you're putting money into educationally, don't do it. If anybody is getting into this field or even thinking about it for the prestige, for the paper on the wall, or for, quote unquote, the money they'll get, they're in the wrong space. This Mm -hmm. is a space for healing. This is a space for personal growth and for that connection to occur. I absolutely agree with you, Sia. It reminds me of what my father told me. You know, my my growing up, I used to sit next to my dad um, and watch him. He's a watchmaker. He's been a watchmaker for, gosh, I think he's going on over 40 years now. Wow. And I remember watching my father and him, you know, asking him, how is it that you can, you know, tolerate, like, first of all, tolerate working with such small parts. And second of Uh all, how is it that you know where everything goes, right? Because it's like super intricate work. And I remember my dad explaining there, you know, like sitting there and like really explaining like how a watch works and the system of a watch and just, you know, just explaining everything, how every part needs to be in place. And, you know, one of the things that he said to me was a very similar message uh, to your dad, Sia, which is... He said, "You, if you pick something in life that you are passionate about, then it won't feel like you're working a day in your life." Mm-hmm. And he said, "You won't, you won't even feel like, you know, like the money. It's not, it's not part of the equation for you if you're enjoying what you're doing." He said, "The money will come, and you'll just be having fun through life." And for me, yeah, fun, it's a little bit of a, of a word that I would maybe challenge because I don't think it's fun, necessarily fun work that we do. It's fun in the moments when I see the results that it brings for my clients, when I see the growth, when I see the, when I see the, you know, the, the way that it changes their life. But it's not obviously fun in the moments of hardship where, you know, they're, they're dealing with the really tough stuff in the room and, you know, I'm right there with them. For me, it's it's become a very spiritual experience for me in the room with my clients. And I do see it as my spiritual calling as well. So I think that to unite with what Sia was saying is that if you if you're thinking of becoming a therapist, you need to really do an uh, an inventory, really ask yourself if Mm. this is in line with what you feel is your life's purpose yeah you know because this is not easy work there are days that I'm brain fried there are days that I come <laughs> you know yeah home and I just I can barely function as a human being like I can barely comprehend what my husband is saying to me even if it means <laughs> you know like do you need a fork you know because I'm trying to eat my dinner um so it's, it <laughs> it's is so true cold work yeah, see, yeah. you guys can relate. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally. So, it, yeah, so it's, I mean, it is very, it, it is tough uh, labor of love to become a therapist. Oh, yes. And it's not, 
it's not about the money. Now, I know that we started off talking about, you know, how successful we both are um, in private practice. Now, again, it hasn't come, at least for me, it hasn't come without all the challenges. It hasn't come without, you know, there being times in the beginning that I didn't really know how the heck I was going to pay all of my bills for that month, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was just that unpredictable in the beginning. People weren't consistent. I didn't have enough clients. Um, And so it's really taught me um, being in the field and just even being in private practice has really taught me that I need to really check my mentality, really check myself so that I am really focused on an abundance mentality. Mm. Because I think that we're so... Um, at least personally, my experience um, being Mexican is that I'm, you know, there's always this sense of like being worried, being worried about what's going to happen, being worried about not having enough. And I, I attribute that to my parents being immigrants, because obviously for them, it became, you know, such a normal thing to always be worried when they first arrived in this country. Um, and so for me, I had to in a, in a sense, rewire myself to not be worried, to trust that things were going to happen the way that they needed to. And then just continue focusing on being the best that I can and, and just doing what I know that I do best, which is help people, which is listen to people, which is, you know, be there for people. And, you know, for me too, God will provide, you know? So that's, that's something that I think really anybody going into this field needs to connect with. It can't just be like Sia said, um, oh, I'm going in for the big bucks and for the diploma on the wall. That's not what this is all about. This is about being a spiritual worker, but calling yourself a therapist. Yeah. You know, you work, you work with, with people's souls. That's how deep this work goes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think the main points that I gather and that I can really relate with are the fact that, yes, being a therapist is a labor of love. I do agree with that. In the very first episode, it was actually released last week on Monday where I talked to Myra Garcia. She's a licensed clinical social worker here in El Paso. We worked together at the same agency, and she was talking about how um, in her naivety, she thought that she was going to get paid all this money, right? Her parents were, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And she was like, am I going to get paid like a psychiatrist? And I'm like, oh, my God, I want to crack up at you right now, right? But um, then she quickly realized that through her program, you know, like, this is not, this is definitely not about money. If you're in it for the money, like, run the other way, go do something else. Um, And if you're in it only for the money, right? Because at some point, I do feel like if you if you kind of, like, build your empire, right, then there may be an opportunity for that further along down the line. But in the very beginning, especially during training and internships, it's a lot of work. And it's not necessarily, yes, it's intellectually demanding, but I would say it's very interpersonally and like demanding of yourself, of your own self, and um, really discovering yourself, what your biases are, what your 
uh, what your body language is communicating. Um, and it's not just, you know, oh, you know, we're reframing those negative or unhelpful cognitions or cognitive distortions or like things like that, right? Like that really, I think, oversimplifies it because those are just techniques. Like anybody can learn those things. To actually sit there and hold space and be completely empathetic with a person is very demanding. Um, and like you said, like, I don't even know what a fork is at the end of the day. Like, uh, sometimes it's really hard, you know, and it's like, I think a lot of people don't really understand or appreciate what therapists do. And I agree with you also about taking an inventory. I've never thought of it that way. But I feel like that is such an important point. Um, whenever you're ready to start the journey of becoming a therapist, taking an inventory of where you're at spiritually, emotionally, physically, um, your past, your traumas, um, why you're doing this work, what you think will come out of it, what your uh, professional development goals are, what your personal development goals are. I think all of those things are very, very important. So, um, I've written down all these quotes if you want me to type them to you and you can turn them into a coffee table book if you'd like. Um, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah. I'm all, I would buy it, especially if it has like little cute drawings. Anyways, so um, thank you for that. I My next question is, I know that you all talked a little bit about um, your private practices. Can you tell me what a typical day of work looks like for you all? What comes to mind for me is that there is no such thing as a typical day. I think because we're working with people, at least from in my experience, working with people, it's not predictable because you don't know what clients are going to come in with. You know what you guys have agreed to work on, and you know why. You know what what it is that they've identified as their goals, and that you know the treatment plan that you have created with them. But oftentimes. Things happen, life happens, and sometimes clients come in with, you know, them really not wanting to focus on that because there's more urgent things, you know, that they or, or more pressing situations for them that they feel like they need to talk about. Here and there, I will experience clients saying, you know, I'm having such a great day or such a great week that I really don't want to use my session to talk about the really difficult stuff that we've been addressing. I really want to just talk about and really just enjoy, you know, what a great day or a great week I'm having. But that's, you know, far and few in between. Um, but most often it's, you know, people coming in and saying, and now this happened and now that happened. And so, you know, I work, like I mentioned, I work with individuals and I work with couples it can be a little bit different um, in, in if I'm seeing, you know, all couples in one day or all individuals in one day. I also work with um, doing assessments for people dealing with immigration. And usually those, you know, situations with individuals, I find myself, you know, dealing with people that are highly triggered by everything that they've experienced. And so there is a lot of, you know, doing a lot of that cognitive stuff, cognitive work, uh, providing tools. I, I integrate a lot of mindfulness tools with my clients. Um, so teaching them ways that they can, you know, deal with the nervous system, teaching them ways that they can um, deal and 
you know, cope with their triggers. Um, but then again, you know, still trying to, to get everything done in order to help them, you know, because a lot of them are on a timeline. They're, they're on a deadline, rather. So it's very different for me on a day-to-day basis. It's really who I have scheduled for that day. It's who is, you know, going to come through that door and what life has thrown at them. So so it's funny because I asked, like, what's a typical day <laughs> in your work day like? But um you're right. The word typical doesn't necessarily capture what happens on the day-to-day with a therapist on any given day because people are unpredictable. You're totally correct about that. What about you, Z? Can you give us some insight on what your day looks like at your work? Yeah. 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 So I think that even before I hit the office, there's an important thing I ask myself. It's like, Z, what is what is it that you want to do in your day and be intentional with it? So recently, I actually met a person that is extremely inspiring and they wake up at four in the morning every single day. And I don't know if I could do 4 a.m., but I've been trying 5 a.m. And they're absolutely right that our habits and our priorities is what forms our future. So in waking up at 5 in the morning, I make it my business to at least read at least for 30 minutes in the morning. I meditate. I pray to my higher power for giving me another day of life. And then I'm also extremely intentional with what I put into my body. So as a vegan, I definitely am in plant-based diet. And why all of this is so important is because if I don't come correct with my clients, how can I even hold space for them? So I know that I need to get all of my stuff together for me to show up 110%. So my day at the office starts about 7 a.m. And I'm lucky enough to where I'm just, I'm book solid. So I'm back to back to back. But the beautiful thing is that when I start my 7 a.m., I am very intentional with whoever I give that slot to. They need to jive with me just as much as I show up for them. They are that pump client. They're stoked to tell me about their challenges and what went well during the week and just really setting the tone for the day. I'm very aware that energy does not lie. So as long as there's a vibe between me and that first client, we're good. And then the second rolls in and then the third and the fourth. And it's just amazing from there. So that's what a day looks like in the office when I'm seeing clients or patients, right? As a coach, I'm also an emotional development coach. It's a little different. So for coaching clients, I will see them either out in the community or I'll see them in the office or online, depending on what it is that they need. And that goes for, you know, um, psychotherapy clients as well. If they need online, I'll meet them online on the computer. Other days where I'm either mentoring, teaching, or I am speaking, that gets a little interesting because as a therapist, we're fully aware of our gifts and we have to mitigate what is a priority and where we want to shift our career to. So I'm extremely open to talking about people that I mentor and that I coach that are, you know, associates right now or interns and in them knowing that you're not just a therapist, you're also an advocate of mental health. You're speaking on the stuff that you know, you're extremely knowledgeable. Once again, you can teach and you can mentor others. There's so many programs out there that are much more willing to give you a stipend as a mental health professional by mentoring other people moving into the field. Currently, I'm mentoring two women of color that are looking to go into the medical field. And all this work fulfills me to the point where I don't feel burnt out in my private practice. If anything, I look forward to seeing them. I I would love to hear, you know, and what happened this week with your mama and what she say (laughs) so it keeps it fun and it keeps it light and I have to say this that 
in knowing that energy exists, when I come home, I make it my business to do a ritualistic cleanse right before I walk into my home because I want to keep things where they belong with limits and boundaries that I know extremely as a professional and as a healer that I carry when I need to, but I also let it be where it needs to in that time and space. So when I get home, I know that I am fully there for myself and my loved ones. So I don't know if that answers the question about on a daily, but as a therapist, it's a, it's a lot for me about variety. It's knowing what speaks to my soul, what makes me feel happy, what energizes me. And sometimes there's some days that are heavier at the office with some trauma work or we just need to go into some past experiences. And that in itself also has its time and space. Um, and that's a really important thing. I think people should be forewarned about if they're going to get into this field because when you help somebody, it it kind of takes a little piece of you, right? Um, and like you said, you can hold that space for them, but right when you you know get in your car and you're on your way home. That space should be left at the office. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do, especially if you're a very compassionate person, right? Which I'm assuming we all are because this is why we got into the field, right? So I think warning people, uh, not warning people, but I guess kind of what would be another word? Maybe educating or letting people. Increasing pe awareness? In yeah. In yes. In I like that. Yeah, that's so much better because I don't want to scare people like warning. <laughs> You know, like, uh, fire. Yeah, no, I mean, increase their awareness about how much it actually takes to maintain a therapist, right? So, like, maintaining your career is not just about getting the clients coming in the door and, like, making sure that they're paying and, like, all the office stuff. That's one component. But then there's the component of how to maintain yourself as a therapist. And that's super important. So I'm glad you brought that up. Personally, for me, right now, because I'm at the agency, it and I understand that I'm on a commitment to, like, repay my student loans and stuff like that, this is temporary. Like, the pace that I'm working at right now is temporary so that I can reach my goal of just paying off my loans. I'll be done in about... 10 months. <laughs> so after that, um, my pace will slow down significantly, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to wait 10 months from now to be happy. Right. So uh -huh. I am very aware of the fact that I do see lots of clients up to 32 a week back to back. And I'd say they took a survey at our agency and I think something like 80% of the people on everybody's caseloads has a history of trauma, right? So it's it's kind of really difficult work, but it doesn't mean that I'm putting myself aside, right? So I always try to make the gym at least four times a week. I wake up early. I always have to have my coffee. I always have to have my breakfast. I carry snacks with me all the time. Um, I make sure to go around the office making people laugh. I always try to um, maintain myself at this level where I'm able to function, but not only just like the minimally functioning person, <laughs> but also understanding that I need to replenish my source, right? Because I'm giving all this energy to people, but at the same time, where does that energy come from? So I, 
all that to say, <laughs> I think it's very important uh, to address boundaries and to address self-care and maintenance because, you know, this is the rest of your life. This is livelihood, you know, and so you do have to be cautious with all of those things. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, to that, it's it's that I agree with everything you guys just said. I think that that has been probably one of the biggest lessons for me in becoming a therapist is that I needed to take charge of, you know, the energy that I took on from others and the energy that I was giving to others and also how I was going, that I needed to be responsible how I uh, and take charge of how I was going to replenish my own energy. Um so it's it's one of those things where, you know, it takes a little while if, if you're new, if this concept is new to you, because sometimes we don't learn that beforehand. Sometimes, you know, becoming a therapist and the journey of becoming a therapist, it's when we first become exposed to the idea of setting boundaries or we first become exposed to, especially coming from a collectivist, you know, culture, right? At least for me, it was all about La Familia. Uh-huh. It was all about, you know, making sure everybody's okay, um, being the oldest in my family and being the only girl um, growing up, the only daughter. Um, I always had to make sure with my mom that, you know, we had taken care of the boys, uh-huh. had taken care of my dad. I just kept hearing about self-care and I kept hearing about boundaries, but these were these were really foreign concepts to me when I started grad school right it was like wait what is that that sounds really cool but I don't really know that I can handle any of that you know because that's not something that I was that I grew up with or that's not something that I was taught and so you know I've I've become I've I guess I can say that I've evolved into this person where I am now able to balance you know both worlds for myself and I'm not going to say that I'm perfect in balancing because there are days where I slip. There are days where, you know, the way that I was raised in in just taking care of others takes over. Um, And then I have to, like, check myself, right? I have to be like, no, like, you haven't eaten lunch. You know, you didn't stick to your schedule. So for me, it's become really important that I create a schedule. And, And I'm talking about, like, an actual physical, you know, paper where I block things out, you know. And, and I, I use an... Um, I use a a system online to keep track of all of, it's an electronic, you know, health record system that I use for my clients. Um, And I have a calendar on there. And so I have to make sure that, you know, a month in advance, I block out all of the time that I'm wanting to use to take care of myself so that I know in advance that that time is not negotiable. That time is not something that I am willing to, to give to others. And so there will be times where I, I have very designated, you know, time. I only see clients Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And that's something that took a while for me to become comfortable with. Because for me, it's like, well, no, I'm supposed to work the whole week, right? I'm so Otherwise, what am I doing? This is not really me working because I was taught that, you know, a job, is 40 hours a week. And so for me, it's like, no, I am giving, you could say more than 40 hours a week of worth of energy when I'm oh working Oh my gosh, clients. yes, absolutely. In, in 
right? In, in, in however many clients I end up seeing for that week. And so for me, I decided, okay, I'm going to look at it that way. And I need to make sure that in the days that I'm not um, seeing clients that I'm doing, I'm doing a combination of things. I'm doing a combination of me taking care of other things that I need to take care of, for example, administrative stuff. Um, or maybe those are the days when I typically will do if I'm being asked to be a guest lecturer or if I'm being asked to somehow be a speaker, you know, do a presentation in the community. Those are the days that I typically do, you know, will do that on unless it's, you know, really impossible because an event is happening and it just so happens to be on the days that I normally see clients then I'll, you know, I'll work around that. But I typically also make sure that I incorporate other forms of, you know, self-care. Like I religiously go to the chiropractor. Being a therapist, sitting all day is a killer on your back. Oh my God, that's true. (laughs) And I know that I've heard so many therapists complain about their lower back and, you know, and so on. And so for me, I make it a point to go to the chiropractor every week. I make it a point to go and get a massage at least every other week, if possible, every week. Um, I get acupuncture. Those are my three go-tos, you know, and and then on top of that, I make sure that I'm in therapy because I need space for myself where it's not just my my wonderful husband who's, you know, super (laughs) supportive, telling me, cheering me up, but that it's somebody who's actually going to sit there and challenge me. My husband will do that from time to time, but he's so loving that he, and he knows, he knows how hard it is, you know, to be a therapist because he has been with me through my entire journey that I think he kind of, you know, holds back from being that person that challenges me just because he doesn't want to make it hard for me. But I'm like, dude, you need to challenge me, you know, and so he'll, he will from time to time. But I, that's one of the reasons why it's so important for me to be in therapy, because it's a taking charge of my mental health, you know, making sure that I don't fall back into, you know, a place where I'm not functional and able to take care of others. That is so good. I th- I think the message here from all of us to people who are listening is, you know, understanding like maybe right now when you're starting out, you're going to hear things like mindfulness and boundaries and self-care and you're going to be like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, I understand that concept like intellectually. But until you get to the point, I think, where we are now in our careers, I'm like lumping us all together because I'm kind of thinking we've been practicing for a while. Right. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I yeah. And I, I think that now it's like, whoa, like if you do not take care of yourself, if you do not practice mindfulness, if you are totally oblivious and you've lost touch with yourself because you have to be self-aware to do this work. Yes. Um, and self-awareness is probably another one of those terms where you're like, oh, yeah, cool. Self-awareness. I know myself. Yeah, cool. No, it's like this really intense um, getting in touch with yourself kind of thing so that you can be there for the other person. And you may not understand this right now. And then you'll remember, hmm, I listened to this podcast one time and they were talking about like self-care and boundaries. And now I know what they mean. But it's probably the most important thing um, that therapists do for themselves because we are exposed to trauma. We are, um, you know, constantly kind of like 
barraged sometimes it just depends on the day right with like all these really painful and disturbing experiences that people come to you with and so in order for you to not only tolerate that but on some level integrate it and become empathic with people takes a whole lot of energy and so thank you so much for talking about that to the both of you. Um, those are very valuable things. Um, and I'm going to start trying some of those things that you mentioned <laughs> because I feel like those are, those are some things that I can definitely integrate into my own practice on the daily. So, um, my last question or last couple of questions, one of them is just kind of about marriage and family therapy, the field in general. So I'm a mental health clinician and I was trained to be a mental health counselor. Um, I was not trained in marriage and family therapy. Like we took a couple of classes, but that was not my focus. So I'm just wondering about, I guess, theoretically, like why would somebody become an MFT versus maybe a regular therapist, like a, like an LPCC or an LPC um, or a social worker? Like what is kind of the difference there? The, you know, that example I gave about, you know, sitting there and watching my father work on watches. For me, that was one of the reasons why I decided to become an MFT when I heard, you know, in doing my research and, and you know, kind of looking around at my options. I remember that that's something that really grabbed my attention when when I heard that an MFT is somebody that is trained systemically. It's a system. And you have to, you know, you, you learn to work with all parts of the system. And so for me, that just spoke my language. Having grown up, seeing my dad work with watches, him talking about what a system a watch is and the parts and so on, it just spoke my language. It spoke to me. And so being an MFT for me, it's being able to specialize in in really like just zooming into the, dy- the dynamics in the relationships between people and, and looking at it from this like bird's eye point of view. You know, I see the whole system, even though we're focusing on this one little part. And I don't know that it necessarily means that it's it's not something that, you know, other types of programs or, or licenses won't provide for you. But I think it is definitely a highlight when you are in an MFT program. You are expected to master this skill of, at least in my experience, that was the case. You were expected to master um thinking systemically, seeing things systemically. Even if you're just working with one person in the room, you're, in essence, working with everyone they're bringing with them into the room. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody that they're talking about, everybody that, you know, that somehow is impacting their situation that they're coming into the room with. Being um, Latina is also something that's congruent with my background, with my heritage, with, you know, coming from a collectivist culture. Girl, yes. Let me tell you something. I think... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, girl, yes. Yes. Let me tell you, you should write... I'm just saying, and I don't know if I'm going to keep this on here. I can edit it out. But I feel like you should write a blog or something or like an article about the parallel between your dad's work and your work. Because earlier you were describing how 
Like, how does he do that all day? Those parts are so small and intricate. Well, if you really think about the way a therapist works, we're doing really nuanced, intricate work, right? And we have to be really yes. patient and look at the small pieces of the system and even the big pieces of the machine, right? So, yeah. I don't know. I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, my dad and I have, we, we can have conversations for days on end. Like, I, this is why we don't call each other on the phone. Oh. <laughs> we'll be there for hours. What about you, Z? Do you have any um, anything to add to like the perspective of you know the MFT versus, I guess the more traditional, not traditional, but like I guess the the counselor who's maybe just trained in mental health counseling or regular counseling. You know, I'll say this, especially as a dual license, I think that each of them, of course, have their own lane and their own realm. But at the end of the day, it's all healers. And, you know, although in school we're trained in this theory and that theory and family systems and knowing how to work with a certain type of client, I this is what I really learned when I really got out there and jumped to the pool of doing the actual work. Every individual is so different that my what might work for one might not work for the other. So at the end of the day, for me, you know, having the LMFT or the LPCC, all the alphabet behind my name, they're just letters. They're just letters at the end of the day that say, hey, Z, you jump these hoops, you're able to provide this legally. But really, the real work is meeting the client where they're at. And for me, I chose to do the dual licensure just because I wasn't sure if I was always going to stay in California. So I'm fully aware that the MFT is much more of a West Coast thing. And the LPCC is much more on the East Coast. That's where it originated. So anybody right now that's doing the LPCC, you know, from from jump to start, not grandfathered in here in California, we're like the stepchildren. There's very limited resources for LPCCs right now here on the West Coast because it's so brand new. It's been on the East Coast for about 50 years and vice versa for for the LMFT. MFT, as I look around the nation, there's some some states that take an extra little hoop to get through to transfer that. And that's what I didn't want. I wanted something that I could easily transfer across the states to say, hey, listen, this is what I need to do within your state. I need to work so I could just get down to business right away. And for me, it only opens up more doors. It was a lot of work in doing dually the hours. A lot of them overlapped, but the LPCC, the hours for that start the minute you graduate and you have your associate number. Versus the MFT, you start accruing hours even while you're in school as a trainee. So for me, that was the only difference. And then towards the end, the licensure exam was extremely different. I have to tell you that I rather go through so many other things than go through the LMFT exam again. That was tough for me. I failed preach. the first one, right? Yes. <laughs> She's like, preach. Oh, my God. Yes, that sounds I scary. Failed, I failed the first time by two points, and it wasn't because oh, I didn't know no. my stuff. It yeah. was literally time management. And the second time, I had 30 minutes left over. You know, I was doing hula hoops in the back and just waiting for my results. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my so, God. Yeah. And, you know, for me, what really stood out about dual licensure and about any of this, about everything and picking your program and when you get in, timing is everything. 
what is meant for you will be there for you. Whether in, in Spanish we say, ni, ni tarde ni temprano. It, it's meant for you, it will be there for you. So regardless if you choose to be a social worker, if you choose to be a mental health professional, LPCC, MFT, make sure that it's the work you want to do. So did you have to take two separate exams? or I did indeed. Yes. I did indeed. And then I had to pay oh. for two applications. I had to pay for two evaluations. BBS lost my check twice. I had to pay twice. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely a battle, but it made me want it more. It literally, it was like the higher universe was saying, Z, how bad do you want this? And I have to really say this. And me being duly licensed, I am duly trained, not only in the theories I needed to learn for the LMFT, but also for the LPCC, which is national. And I took the national exam and I learned this, that in California, the test is much harder, but the subject material it's not as vast as the national exam. I have to say that a really well-trained, thorough therapist will have no problem passing the national exam. That one was way easier because it's common sense. It's common sense inside a person that if A and B happen, what do you do? Versus the LMFT exam, I feel that is extremely subjective. You could literally guess your way through that, and some people that shouldn't pass, pass. And wonderful, amazing therapists that I've known for years that know their stuff don't pass. So there's a lot of work to be done there still with the licensing exams. It was probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Throughout the entire test, you don't know if you're passing or failing. But the worst is that that test should not signify or by any means determine whether you are a good therapist or not. The system is broken. I have to say that just in taking the national exam, that test is much more reflective because it's based on decision-making, critical thinking, and treatment planning. Versus the LMFT, it's not. You literally have pairs paragraph of questions and then paragraph answers. No human being can read that fast, no matter who you are. My graduate program was a little traumatizing to me. So I think the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear something like that from another professional is, one, yeah, the system's broken. I agree with you. Not only probably in California, but here in Texas, too. There's all kinds of ass-backwardness that's happening over here. (laughs) And it's like... Why is this happening? Obviously, tests and licensure and, you know, these rubrics and the rigor that we put people through is not culturally appropriate, first of all. Um, So it just makes me think of how many people are weeded out of the system that have so much potential to be therapists who can't necessarily jump through these hoops because it takes a lot of mentoring and training, a lot of grit. And sometimes, you know, like you were saying, Z, like you had to take the test a couple times. You know what I mean? It just kind of weeds people out. So it makes me sad, like to hear stuff like that. Um, And we definitely don't want to scare you with this podcast episode, but we want to prepare you and have you understand that you have to be the type of person who wants this career, probably more than anything you've ever wanted in your life. Um, And two, be ready to advocate for yourself and take a lot of initiative. If you can find some like-minded people, a really good mentor, a really good coach, you know, build your support system with your therapist, do your self-care with your rituals, with your family time, setting boundaries. If you can start doing all that now, there's no reason why you can't do it. But it 
it does take a lot of work, especially for a minority. I feel like we have to work twice as hard. We also have to remember when we're going through something like that, that just because the landscape doesn't look like it includes us, it doesn't mean we don't belong there. I think that I could have easily been, I, I actually was very intimidated by the exam. And everywhere that I went, I was the only Latina therapist. I was the only Spanish-speaking therapist. And so for me, the landscape didn't include me. Just because it's such an intimidating thing to think about taking an exam, or even if you do find yourself, you know, taking the exam and not passing the first time, you have to remember that just because the landscape doesn't include you, it doesn't mean you don't belong there. There is a reason why you're here. There is a reason why you got as far as you did. If you're listening to to this interview and you're already like almost at the finish line, remember that, you know, because it's not, it's so sad to me whenever I hear that somebody didn't pass on their first try and then they just gave up. Oh, I know. That's heartbreaking. Do you have any other specific general advice for people who are looking to become an MFT? One of the biggest things that I suggest is that definitely speak with an accountant, speak with a CPA, speak with a business coach and an attorney. These are the main support systems you're going to need when you get out into private practice. And the reason I address this is because sooner or later, you're going to find yourself on this track of, do I want to stay in an agency? Do I want to be part of a group practice? Do I want to build my own? And if you don't have the right support system or the colleagues around you that are going to allow that space to occur, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to the point where you're even going to question, is this worth it? If you build yourself up with that team, just like self-care, right? Having your therapist, having your coach, your acupuncturist, your massage therapist, you need to have that already established. Otherwise, the road might get rocky and hard. Um, Even if it's just reaching out to somebody who's already in the field and starting with that, you know, just kind of getting a sense. I mean, listening to this this podcast and, and, and the fact that you're gathering information before you even, you know, take that step, it's a huge thing already, you know. But I think that even just kind of reaching out and doing a one-on-one with somebody who's already in the field um, could help you. Everything that we've said, like taking your personal inventory, looking at, you know, your professional development goals? Do you want to open a private practice? Do you want to start at an agency? How are you going to pay for your student loans? Just like all those logistical things, right? But we've here today, we talked about how deep the work is when you're a therapist and really considering that as well, because it's not just another degree in like engineering or, you know, business administration. It's very deep um, soul work, right? So I think being really aware of that, um, that it's much more nuanced than, oh, I help people every day. It's way more nuanced than that. And also just to close, I want to give you all the opportunity to talk about anything like your private practices, how people can reach you if they have questions or if they want to seek services with you. My private practice, like I I mentioned before, it's located in Tustin, California. I'm in Orange County. My website, it's uh, mindfulquestrelationshipcounseling.com. Through there, you can also find me on Instagram or Facebook. 
So I'm located in Sherman Oaks, and my yummy, yummy, yummy clientele that I love working with is women working on the I before the we. The definitely, you know, the divorce rate is way too high, and I love working with individual, powerful women that are entrepreneurs and just professionals looking on to build a relationship with themselves even before they couple up or partner up. So... In saying that, people can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest for Vida Therapy. It's across the board. So it's V-I-D-A Therapy. And my website is www.vidatherapy.co. I do try and do an Instagram Live at least a minimum to two to three times per week where I give free resources. Uh, my webpage also has a tab for resources for books, applications, movies, you name it, CDs that will help increase mental health awareness. Thank you so much. And I will be supplying everyone with those links in my blog post and attached to the podcast episode. I really appreciate the time that you've taken, all of your words of wisdom. It's so nice and refreshing to talk to other professionals in different parts of the country. Thank you. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much, Christopher Marisa. Girl, you are on point. I love this. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> yeah, the whole time I was like, yes, yes, yes and yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> A special thank you to Maritza Plasencia and Zilat Lopez, licensed marriage and family therapists. Their links and bios can be found at www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist. <laughs>